This morning we come to the end of 2 Corinthians. We've spent a few months looking at this letter. And I think taken as a whole, the theme of this letter really is our weakness, God's power. In this letter we've seen Paul reveal his own weakness and his emotions and his heart. We've seen that more than in any of his other letters. We've also seen how Paul's ministry reflects the ministry of Christ. Christ suffered for the sake of others. And as he hung on the cross in weakness, God's power was at work through his weakness. We've seen that Paul's life follows that same pattern. We're going to see that again this morning. And in fact, this is to be the pattern for every follower of Jesus Christ. None of us, of course, are ever going to die to save people from their sins. But if we follow Jesus, we will experience difficulty and weakness. And as we give ourselves to serve God in our weakness, God will display his power through us. He will use us. So far we've spoken about Paul, but the other main factor in this letter is the Corinthian church. And it's true, Paul has been able to point to some positives in Corinth. We know that they were receptive to the last letter he wrote them. They sorted out one particular problem that Paul had challenged them about. And they've at least promised to contribute to Paul's collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. As yet, they haven't followed through on that promise, but Paul is sure that they will. So there are positive notes in this letter. But there are also major challenges. There are plenty of things that need to be sorted out and put right in Corinth. There's plenty of muck lying around this fellowship. It needs to be cleaned up. And that's one reason Paul is planning to visit the church again. The other reason is to finalize the collection for Jerusalem. Last week we heard Paul call the Corinthians to take responsibility in preparation for his visit. And this morning we come to his final words in this letter. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find them on page 1166. 2 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 1. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier. Or any of the others. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you. But is powerful among you. For to be sure he was crucified in weakness. Yet he lives by God's power. Likewise we are weak in him. Yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. Examine yourselves. To see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 
Do you not realize that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent, so that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is God's word. And this passage is about Christ at work. We learn first that the practice of church discipline is evidence that Christ's power is at work. Then second, self-examination and self-discipline by church members is evidence that Christ's power is at work. And third, we learn God gives his willing people the power to do what is required of them. So first, in verses 1 to 4, Paul shows us that the practice of church discipline is evidence that Christ's power is at work. The background to what Paul says here in chapter 13 is found at the end of chapter 12. If you look back up to chapter 12, verse 20, we read this. I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Paul has good reason to believe all those things are going on in the church. And in fact, they have been going on since the time he wrote 1 Corinthians. He wrote that letter probably about a year before this one. 1 Corinthians challenges them about all the things that he mentions here. But it seems that many in the church have not repented. They haven't turned away from the sin Paul challenged them about. And remember too, Paul has visited and sent another letter in between 1 Corinthians and this letter. We don't have that tearful letter, but Paul mentioned it back in chapter 2. The point is, the Corinthians have had plenty of time and opportunity to put things right. But they haven't. And Paul is not going to let this sin go unchecked. When he arrives, he will take charge. He will bring discipline to the church. That's the clear message of verses 1 and 2 here. In verse 1, Paul quotes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. 
This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That law in quotation marks was originally given to guard against malicious witnesses. For an accusation against someone to stick, there had to be at least two witnesses against the person. That meant that one individual with a personal vendetta couldn't bring someone else down. But why does Paul quote that law here? Well, he seems to be making the point that his visits to Corinth count as witnesses against the church there. He's not going to bring discipline based on just one observation of their sin. He's already given them warning and opportunity to repent. In verse 2, he says, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. If Paul has to bring discipline when he arrives, it will not be out of the blue. They've had ample warning. Any of the others is a reference to any new sin that he might discover when he arrives. He will bring discipline on that too. So this letter is a final warning to the whole church. When he arrives, he will not spare those who are engaged in unrepented sin. But what exactly does he mean by, I will not spare them? He means he will not spare them from church discipline. So then, what does he mean by church discipline? Well, in several other places, Paul sets out the procedure. He tells us that church discipline is carried out on professing Christians who are recognized as members of the church. It's not directed at unbelievers or people outside the church. And he tells us church discipline is for members who are involved in some sin which they have been challenged about, but which they will not repent of. They won't give it up. It's important to be clear on this. Church discipline is only for those who claim to belong to Christ. And it's only for those who sin and will not turn away from their sin. Every Christian stumbles and sins. We've acknowledged that earlier in our service today. But church discipline comes into play when a professing Christian refuses to give up their sin or they refuse to enter into a battle against their sin. So this is not a case of pounce on the unsuspecting sinner. It's not a case of crush the person when they make a mistake. Church discipline only happens at the end of a process where the person has been challenged about their sin but they've chosen to ignore the challenge. What happens at that point? What does church discipline involve? Well, in other passages, Paul describes it as being handed over to Satan. He uses that phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and again in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And what he means by being handed over to Satan is removal from the church fellowship. That involves being removed from the accountability and the fellowship and the spiritual sustenance of the church body. 
It means being treated as an unbeliever, not as a brother or sister in Christ. That is a bad situation to be in. And the horror of it comes across in the words that Paul uses, handed over to Satan. The person who's put out of the fellowship might not realize the horror of what's happening. They're in love with their sin. But those putting the person out can see the horror of it. Paul himself saw it as a horrible, terrible thing. He could never be accused of taking it lightly or doing it lightly. But Paul is willing to do it for three reasons. First of all, the health of the rest of the church body. Unrepented sin is like a cancer in a church fellowship. For the good of the body, the sin needs to be cut out. If the sinning individual insists on holding on to their sin, then the only way to cut out the sin is to put out the person. And connected to this is the second reason Paul is willing to bring discipline. He has promised the church to one husband, Christ. And he will do all he can to present her as a pure virgin to Christ. That means he will work to purify the church from sin. He said that back in chapter 11. Church discipline is done for God's glory. And the third reason Paul is willing to bring discipline is for the ultimate good of the disciplined person. The hope is that the experience of discipline will wake the person up. That they will feel the loss when they're removed from the fellowship. And that they will go on to repent and be saved. Biblical church discipline always always has this aim of repentance and restoration. It's never just punishment. It's never just throwing someone out. Its goal is repentance and restoration. Now, Paul doesn't explain any of that here. That's because he explained it in 1 Corinthians. They have that letter in Corinth, and as they read this one, The Corinthians won't be in any doubt what Paul means when he says, I will not spare those who are sinning. That's what he means in verses 1 to 2, but in verses 3 to 4, he adds something else. He says that if he arrives and brings discipline, it will be evidence that Christ's power is at work. In verses 10 to 12, or chapters 10 to 12, we saw that false apostles have arrived in Corinth. And with his tongue in his cheek, Paul has been calling them super apostles. Under their influence, the Corinthians started to view Paul as unimpressive. Where was the evidence that Christ was working through Paul? He seems to be harassed and humiliated all the time. But here Paul responds to that and he says, if I arrive and bring discipline, you will be seeing evidence that Christ is working through me. Verse 3, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. There shouldn't be a full stop in the middle of verse 3. 
Paul's point in this verse is, if I came and turned a blind eye to all this sin, that would be evidence that Christ is weak in dealing with you. He's not at work among you. But if he uses me to attack the cancer of sin, that's evidence he is at work among you. Powerfully at work. After all, God is holy. He calls his people to be holy. So when God is at work, sin will be taken seriously. It will not be swept under the carpet. It's so, so important for us to grasp the principle here. A church where sin is ignored is not a loving church. It's not even a living church. It's dead. On the other hand, a church where sin is mourned over and dealt with, that's a church where Christ's power is at work. That's a church which is alive. God cares about sin. And God is present in his church. Therefore, the true living church of God will care about sin. Now, I understand the pressure that we feel as Christians. We want people to come to church. And when they come, we want them to stay. What's going to happen if we do church discipline? Or if we talk about church discipline? Won't we shrink and die? No. The opposite is true. When church discipline is carried out in love... And with the aim of repentance and restoration, the church grows stronger. History proves that to be true. The world around us begins to see that we stand for something. It begins to see that we're different, and different in a good way. We're cultivating a community of faithfulness, and honesty, and openness, and purity. And we hold each other accountable to these things. So in fact, church discipline is a privilege. It's a privilege to be in a fellowship where we are challenged about our sin. In our clear-minded moments, I think we can see how sad it would be if we were involved in some sin and the rest of the fellowship just stood back and ignored it. They just let us get on with it. A church that practices biblical discipline is a church where Christ is powerfully present and powerfully at work. On the other hand, where is the presence and power of Christ when sin is allowed to flourish? When men and women go unchallenged in their sin? even though their sin is storing up God's wrath against them. In verse 4, Paul is talking about Christ when he says, For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. Paul's Savior was weak on the cross. Yet now he is powerful, he's risen, and he's working. Paul belongs to Jesus, and he is weak, 
and yet powerful at the same time. At the end of verse 4, the word live is in contrast to the word weak. Yes, Paul says, you've all heard about my weakness, and it's all true. But when I come, I will be fully alive by God's power. And that power will be seen as Paul serves the Corinthians or deals with them by bringing discipline. But Paul hopes and he prays that God will show his power in a different way. Paul hopes that the Corinthians will deal with the sin themselves. And then when Paul arrives, he can be just weak. The work will already have been done. In verses 5 to 10, Paul shows us that self-examination and self-discipline by church members is evidence that Christ's power is at work. If verses 1 to 4 are a warning that discipline is coming from Paul, Verses 5 to 10 are a call to avoid that discipline by doing some self-discipline. Verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Paul calls them to do some self-examination. We know from this letter that they're very engrossed in examining Paul, debating among themselves whether he was too weak and unimpressive to be God's servant. But here Paul says, turn the spotlight around. Turn it on yourselves. And the question there to ask themselves is, are you in the faith? What does that mean? Well, in this context, it probably means not only do you believe the truths of the faith, But also, does your life match up to the truths of the faith? Are you obeying God's commands? There are plenty of people who at one time in their life made some sort of profession of faith in Christ. They prayed a prayer. Maybe they even got baptized and became a member of a church. Maybe they could even give you a clear presentation of the truth about Jesus. But they do not love holiness. They do not hate sin. They are not concerned to obey God. And they are not walking with God. Their treasure and their priorities are somewhere else entirely. To men and women in that situation, the Bible says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you honestly have good reason to say, yes, I belong to Jesus? Because I can see Jesus doing his transforming, purifying work in my life. I can see fruit in my life. Now I know ultimately our own verdict on ourselves is not the important thing. Some of us are too hard on ourselves. We can't see the signs of progress that are there in our lives. Others of us are too easy on ourselves. We think that we're doing just fine. But other people can see that that's not true. 
So the verdict that matters at the end of the day is God's. And yet, God's word says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Take a long, clear-eyed look at your life. Hold your life up to the test of Scripture. Where are you in terms of obedience? Availability to God. Submission to God. Love for God. Satisfaction in God. Are there signs of life? Can you find a pulse? Now it seems that in the Corinthians case, Paul believes that there is spiritual life. He believes that Christ is present and active among them. What he wants them to do is give proof of that by turning from their sin before Paul arrives. Look again in the middle of verse 5. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Then in the next few verses, there are two things going on. Paul is working in these verses to wean the Corinthians away from the super apostles. And he is pleading with them to be restored to God even before Paul comes to Corinth. With regard to the super apostles, Paul wants the Corinthians to see that they can trust him instead of the super apostles. So after calling them to put themselves to the test, he says in verse 6, And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now, we would have expected Paul to say, I trust you will discover that you have not failed the test. But Paul says, we, meaning himself. How will the Corinthians' self-examination lead to Paul passing the test? Well, simply because it was Paul who brought the gospel to them. It was under Paul's preaching of the gospel that the Corinthians came to Christ. And here he says, if you pass the test, then so do I. If you are in Christ, then it shows that Christ is working through me. But Paul's main concern is not to vindicate himself. So in verse 7 he says, Now we pray to God that you will do nothing wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right even though we may seem to have failed. Paul says, at the end of the day, so what if I pass the test in the eyes of others? I want to see you do what is right. Verse 8, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. In one sense, it would help Paul's reputation if he showed up in Corinth, read the riot act, turfed half the congregation into the street, and called the whole place to attention. That would make people sit up and take notice of Paul. He would become known as a problem solver, a fixer, a man who could turn around messed up congregations. But that's not what Paul wants. 
when he arrives in Corinth ready to read the riot act, he wants to have the wind taken out of his sails. He wants to find that the truth has already prevailed. And then he won't have to fix things. I think that's what he means when, in verse 8 when he says, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. In other words, if I come and find disobedience, then I will fight for the truth. But if I come and find that the truth is reigning, then I won't have anything to do. Because I'm not going to fight against the truth. Paul knows it would look good for him if he could come and show his strength. But he's very happy to come and just be the weak, unimpressive Paul. Because that will mean the Corinthians are strong in the faith. They're learning to stand in the faith without Paul's help. So in verse 9, we are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. A better translation is probably for your restoration rather than perfection. The word that Paul uses is related to a medical term that refers to setting broken bones. So yes, it's true that ultimately Paul does want to see their perfection. But in this context, he's praying that order will be restored to the church. He's praying for an end to all the divisive things that he mentioned in chapter 12. Quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And he's praying that the Corinthians will turn from their impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery, and be restored to God. Paul wants the Corinthians to get right with him, with one another, and above all, with God himself. And Paul wants all of that to happen before he even shows up. Verse 10, this is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. This is the third time Paul has said this in the last few chapters. Everything that he does is for their building up. It's for their progress. Now sometimes he has to tear down before he can begin to build up. But tearing down is never an end in itself. So Paul will gladly set aside his plans to dish out discipline. Discipline from Paul would be evidence that Christ cares about these people. And that he's at work among them. But the display of Christ's power that Paul is praying for is self-examination and self-discipline by the Corinthians themselves. And that is the hope and prayer of every genuine Christian leader. Church leaders who love the church are willing to bring discipline. They won't let sin go unchecked, like a cancer in the body. But they long to see people come to repentance before church discipline is needed. 
I would guess that every one of us here feels uncomfortable about church discipline. That should motivate every one of us to self-examination and self-discipline. Let's examine ourselves every day. Let's turn from our sin freshly every day. Let's feed on God's word and speak to him every day. Let's rededicate our lives to him every day. And preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And then by God's grace, there will be very little need for church discipline. Paul loves these men and women. He's written them a letter that's full of highs and lows. A letter with plenty of stern words. But now he closes his letter with words of encouragement. He ends with the assurance that God gives his willing people the power to do what is required of them. Verse 11. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We are not called to live for God under our own steam. In verse 11, even as Paul reminds the Corinthians of what he has called them to do, he says, and the God of love and peace will be with you. That doesn't mean he'll be with you if you do what you ought to do. It means he'll be with you as you do what you ought to do. He will supply you with the power to do what you ought to do. Paul is giving these believers a promise. Of course, it's only a promise for those who are willing and eager to obey God. No one who rebels against God can then say, well, God didn't give me the power to obey. It's as you and I aim to obey that God gives us the power to obey. In verse 12, Paul points again to the importance of fellowship. He calls for warmth among these men and women. A kiss is one way to show warmth. But I don't think Paul is laying down a law here. I'm sure Paul would be just as happy to see a hug or a warm handshake between brothers and sisters in Christ. His point is, you're not business associates, you're family. Show your family affection in appropriate or pure or holy ways. Then in verse 14, in his final prayer for them, you'll notice that Paul leaves no one out. He prays for them all. This fellowship has given Paul the runaround. They've given him a whole heap of trouble. But Paul follows in the steps of his Savior. The Savior who persevered with 12 hard-headed disciples. And so Paul says in verse 14, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this letter. We realize that we won't remember everything we've seen in these 13 chapters, but at least let us remember this. We are weak. We are jars of clay. Our bodies are wasting away, or they soon will be. And our love and our service for you is weak too most of the time. And yet, in your wisdom, we have been reminded that you not only choose weak people like us, you persevere with us. You continue loving us even when we're unlovely. And as we give ourselves to you, you display your power in us. You fill us with all the love and the peace that we need. And you somehow use us to carry the treasure of the gospel to a lost, dying world. We are humbled by this privilege that we have. We're comforted by your compassion for us. And we're filled with hope as we think of the eternal glory that you have prepared for us. Amen. Let's sing together. Love, 